Well, hello, church family. This is chapter 34 of our our daily devotional that I've been doing the last year. I can't believe it's been a year already. And um, yeah, chapter 34, we're just moving along through the book of Exodus. And some of you, when you uh, you might have heard that uh, Pastor Henry is going to do the book of Numbers after his series and Luke and with a little interlude through the, through the his series in Psalm 19, which is kind of cool for us because that means that when you when we get to uh, the book of Numbers, you should at least have a general idea of what's uh, of how they got there. Uh, the Torah is you know the first five books in the Bible, and um, the num and Numbers is is that last book of the Torah, and it's supposed to really show, or not really the last book, it's one of the last books, Deuteronomy is the last book, uh, but, you, the, but this, this is a lot of ways, the Numbers is going to come after this book, and it's going to show you how people were indeed unfaithful to the Lord, um, which is sad, uh, but yet um, there are moment, moment, moments that the Israelites had demonstrated faithfulness, um, and you would think that a passage like this, and Exodus 34 will help the Israelites be faithful, but before we make judgments about them, we have to understand that we are prone to have these moments where we have great spiritual highs and also spiritual lows as well. And this is definitely one of those spiritual highs because God renews the covenant with his people. And we'll see that here in chapter 34. Let's begin. Now, Yahweh said to Moses, Cut out for yourself two stones, tablet like the former ones, and I will write on the tablet the words that were on the former tablet which you shattered. So this is just the command that God gives them. But this is not just any command. It's a very unique command. He's telling him to go and basically start over. Like, you know, he broke the tablets because of his anger towards the Israelites for their sin, and now he's telling them, go back and get, get two more tablets, and we'll write this over again. Which, in and of itself, is a mercy from God. Because the fact that God is willing to give them the law again shows that there is a renewal in their covenant relationship. That God is willing to continue on His faithfulness, even though Israel has failed tremendously back then. Um, but yet, God is still willing to do so. He's telling Moses to get these two tablets, he's going to write all over again and again. This shows God's kindness, his patience, and his long-suffering. Verse 2, So be ready by morning. Come up in the mountain to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. Uh, verse 3, No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So this, <coughs> excuse me, this, this should look and sound familiar, right? This is, <coughs> See, this is Exodus 19 all over again. Uh, the, the mountain, they're going to go up the mountain, there's going to be a cloud, and then it's going to become this holy mountain wherever God stands, and a little bunny cannot even jump on it or even go close to it, because if they do, they die. Uh, because this mountain is going to be unique, uh, because God is there, and he's going to give uh, Moses the command. Uh, God's holiness is always a threat to those that are unholy, and there's nothing in all of creation that is not tainted by sin, which makes everything in all creation unholy, except for God himself. Verse 4, So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to the Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded, and he took two stone tablets in his hand. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of Yahweh. Then Yahweh passed by in the front of him and proclaimed, 
Yahweh, the Yahweh, Yahweh God, um, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquities, transgressions, and sin, and yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. I'm going to stop right there. It's very fascinating that um, all of this happened. Uh, he, uh, in, in, when you know God passed in front of him and Moses uh, proclaimed these attributes about the Lord, that he is, first of all, Yahweh, that he is a covenant God. He calls him by the right name. He, he is first described as being compassionate. This means that he has a genuine care for his people. Our God is not a God that just makes the world and then stands away from it and, and, has, and does not care about what's going on in the details of the lives of his creation. God knows, as Job described, he knows when the mountain goes to give birth. He's in control of over everything that's going on. And ultimately, everything that God providentially allows to take place on earth is for his glory, but it's also good for his people. And that's something that we need to remember, that our God is a compassionate God. He's not some uh, giant robot that has no f emotions. He, he cares about us. Uh, and the chief evidence of that is by, is by sending his son to die in our place for our sins. That's the main thing. But he always provides for us in, in all of, with all of our needs. He begins by describing God as compassionate and he's gracious. And we know what gracious is because we experience it every single day. It's God giving us something that we don't deserve. Um, He's slow to anger. This means he's patient towards those that are morally sinful. Those and, and, and when we think of sin, we can't just think of some <clears throat> just merely the outward things that we do, but there are those internal ones as well. Those the, the the thoughts and the motives that are corrupted. God sees all of those things, and and yet he's still slow to anger. Notice that the next attribute is he's abounding in loving kindness. That means he's he's there's this, he's covenant keeping. He he's just always. Uh, keeping his love towards his people. He doesn't break his law. And, in, and the last attribute here in verse 6, that he's truth. All that God is, all the thing he says, everything that he does is absolutely true. We live in a culture where everything is subjective, everything is in the eye of the beholder, and those things that we think is right and wrong is always, um, is, is not true. You know, we live in a lie, but God, in terms of everything that he does, is absolutely true. These are these attributes that Moses is describing Yahweh. Verse 7, who, he, he keeps his coming, uh, loving kindness for thousands. I mean, like, you know, this, is, this is hyperbole, every single one here. Um, every single cup, uh, every, not really hyperbole, it's actually more it's the opposite of that, where it's like it doesn't really live up to it because we know that God's doesn't, it's not like a number, just a thousand, that's it. Brother, it's infinite. He forgives sins and transgressions and sin, uh, He forgives iniquity. And it says here, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Now it's easy when you read this and think that, oh well, does this mean that the son is punished for the sins of the father? Because when you read it just very quickly, you might assume that that's the case. But that isn't what this verse is saying. What this verse is saying is actually that if the future generation, if let's say my son commit the same sins that I commit, God will treat him just as much uh, as he would me, you know, uh, the the punishment for sin, uh, no matter what generation it is, is, God sees it as as an offense, and he is consistent in his moral character. And he goes and he says the grandchildren in third and fourth generations. This means that God 
is going to keep his moral law. He doesn't compromise just because the culture changes. And this is a reminder for us that God's attribute does not change. His moral standard does not change. This is why in the world today, when everyone's talking about how we need God, or you, uh, uh, you, need, you know, especially with the LGBTQ movement, when they're saying things like, oh, you have a problem with my God, and even as they're living in a homosexual lifestyle, and they're using essentially they're essentially saying that God is on my side on this, but that's not the case because God's character has always been the same. God cannot want for one moment change his mind and think, "Oh yeah, this is not uh, now that the people have voted, uh, I'm going to change my moral standard." No, that's this, that's the God of Islam. That's the God of Mormonism. That's the God of every other religion except the true God of the Bible. God's character is the same. His moral character is the same. He forgives iniquity, but he doesn't let sin go unpunished. He's merciful in that way. He is long-suffering, maybe another way to think about it. Verse 8, Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. He said, if I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord be uh, along in our midst. Even though the people are so obstinate and pardon our iniquity and, uh, and our sin and take us as your own possession. There's this reaction here, make haste. This is it's just basically, he, it's a sudden reaction, knowing and thinking about the attribute of God. He, it makes him worship. This is immediate worship when he understands more of who God is. And this is something that you and I need to think about. The more we learn about God's attributes, like the ones that I just listed, the reason why I listed all those things is so that you need to see that God is this way towards you, that he is indeed compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, and truthful to you. All the things that he is, it's good. And that should make you, in, in, the, in whatever context you're in, it should make you worship him. It should make you worship him more. And Moses here is hoping that God will continue on being in the midst of them, not just being separate. Remember last chapter, uh, the, uh, there was a camp and, he, uh, and uh, the tent where God is supposed to dwell is separate from them. It's, it's supposed to be a, a visible de demonstration of Israel being distant from the Lord because of their sin. And now Moses is saying, can you please come back in the midst of us so that even in light of our, our, our mercy, we know that we're sinful people, but please make us your, your own possession. This is God's response. Then God said, Behold, I am going to make a covenant before all your people. I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations. And all the people among whom you live will see the working of Yahweh, for it is the fearful thing that I'm going to perform with them. God's response to them is always in the positive when, they, when people repent. God always shows kindness to those that turn from their sins. And we understand that if you have some sort of broken relationship and you love the other person, especially if you are the, the one that is the one in the right of the disagreement and you, and you love this person, but you hate the disagreement and that person eventually comes and realizes, oh, I did something stupid, I apologize. You, you welcome them back because you love the relationship. And this is what you, it's like a picture we would see here. Like there's a, there was a problem, Israel failed to obey the Lord and yet God is still willing to, to be with them. He's going to perform miracles. He's going to show them that they are a unique people. And it's not even going to just like, it's not just so Israel will be shown as great. It will show that he is great. Israel has said that they're going to fall into fear because of what God is going to do. He's going to do something that have never been seen, meaning that the Ten Commandments, I mean the Ten Plagues that happened in Egypt, he's going to do things that, that, that will, will make those look like nothing. God's going to show his power in such a way that even his people will be like, wow, I did not know God can do that. 
That's what he's, that's what's going on here in verse 10. He's going to show them, uh, God is going to show his power to the people. Verse 11, be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorites before you, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. Again, this is a time where all of these nations are very sinful nations. They're all polytheistic nations. It is very rare in, in that culture to have a, a actually, it's actually nearly impossible for a culture that that time to just worship one god. You know, there's usually like, oh, you know, even when they were going to Egypt, there was at least 10 of them that they worship. And every, even modern day, there's like people, there's, we live in a polyistic culture. Even people that claim to be secularists or atheists, they are, that itself is actually a form of religion. It's a cult, if you think about it. The only thing that makes the Bible, the God of the Bible unique, is that we say we worship the one and true God. We don't make room to say, okay, we can accept your worldview, we accept the Buddhists, we accept the Muslims, we accept the, the Mormons or whatever. No, we, they, they are not, their lifestyle, it, yes, is whatever they want to do, but it's not true. Because the only true God is the one true living God that's found in Scripture. He tells them to watch themselves. Because he knows that if they fall into some sort of code cohabitation again this is not a, a, an ethnic thing this is a religious thing if they if they allow them in their midst they will fall uh, morally verse 13 but rather you're to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram now it's interesting because they haven't got to this point yet they haven't got there and they their uh, god is instructing them of these of these things that they will see these all these all these false idols and temples they're instructed to destroy them Verse 14, for you shall not worship any other gods, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And this is actually a very, this is the only time uh, where it's used, where God describes himself like this. Oftentimes other people writing about him, but God is actually saying this about himself, that he is a jealous God. Uh, again, he, what, what makes this seem weird in our context is that we don't like the word jealousy. Right? We think that's like a very petty and immature attitude. But God grounds gar, God grounds himself in truth, and he guards his own significance. Because he is the only true God. There is no other God around him. The re objective reality is that there is only one God. And for anyone to even attempt to say that there's more than one God, and that there are other creators out there, and other people that are sovereign, it's like a spit in the face of the Lord. Because God is the only true God. There's only one God. And that's why it's okay for me to be jealous, because no one... There is no one like him. He is beyond everyone, outside everything. He's control over all things. He's a jealous God, and that's rightfully ascribed to him. He protects his own significance in that way. You understand that every time when you fall into sin, when you have a certain idol, you're basically trying to dethrone the Lord. You're saying that this sin, or this hobby, or this job, this career, this school, this ministry, if you love anything more than the Lord, you are saying that that is the most delightful thing in all of existence. And this is something that you need to really be mindful of, that God is a jealous God. He is the only one that deserves such worship. Verse 15, Otherwise you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. They would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and someone might invite you to eat eat of his sacrifice and you might take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughter might play the harlot with their gods and cause you your sons also to play the harlot with their gods you shall make 
you shall make for yourself no golden molten gods. And this is just something that he said before, that you shall not intermarry, not because of their ethnicity, but because of their faith. God commands them to not marry those that are outside of the faith. Verse 18, you shall observe the feast of the unleavened bread for seven days. You are to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the appointed time, the month of Abib. And for in the month of Abib, you came out of Egypt. The first offspring from every womb belongs to me and all your male livestock, the first offspring from cattle and sheep. You shall redeem with a lamb the first offspring from a donkey. And if you do not redeem it, you shall break its neck. You shall redeem all the first form of your sons. None shall put here before me empty handed. So what is the point of all this? This part here is just basically God saying that you need to worship him. There's a certain time for it. And this will be a remembrance of their deliverance. The firstborn are devoted to him. This isn't to say that um, the, that like, especially the, the firstborn humans. It's not that, that isn't to say that they're supposed to sacrifice their child. But rather, it even says here, it, gives us, it tells them that they need to redeem it. Meaning that they have to have a substitute for that. Um, that, that basically when you offer sacrifices to the Lord, and whenever you go and worship him, you're not supposed to go empty-handed. That's uh, the idea. When you worship, you can't go empty-handed. This is, I mean, this goes all the way back until you know, after the after the garden, right? After the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, Cain and Abel, they're supposed to offer a sacrifice to the Lord, and Cain's sacrifice was unacceptable because he, it did not go according to God's standard, and that's what God here is saying here. Go when you offer a sacrifice, it must be exactly how I want it to. You cannot appear before Him empty-handed, and that's just part of the worship. Verse 21, you shall work six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even uh, during the plowing time and harvest, you shall rest. You shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks, that is, the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year, all your males are to appear before me, the God of Israel. And I will drive out the nations before and will enlarge your borders, and no man shall covet your land when you go out three times a year to, be, to, a year to appear before the Lord your God. So there's this basically a... Uh, God is telling them that they need to rest and the, and the, and the offerings and this, uh, the, the things that they need to do. And this, again, it's supposed to show them that this is part of the created order, that man is supposed to rest. And, and in their rest, even though they're supposed to, you know, the most cultures at the time would want to work every single day or in some cultures work none at all, they're supposed to have this balance of rest and work, and God is going to bless them for it. Verse 25, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is a sacrifice of the feast of Passover to be left over until morning. So whatever you want to sacrifice, it has to be on that day. It has to be fresh. You shall bring the very first of your fruits, the very first of the first fruits of your soul into the house of Yahweh your God. So you have to offer God your, your the best things you have to give. And at the end of verse 26, you shall not boil a young goat in his mother's milk. I, I mentioned this before because this is not the first time this, uh, this, this reference was made. And he came, I think showed him in Exodus 23. It basically, this is about uh, a cultic practice where you put in a young goat in hopes that when the young goat gets bigger, uh, that young goat, that goat will, well, I guess this adult goat will somehow make more babies. Uh, and God's saying, no, that's not how it works. You're supposed to get rid of that practice and just trust that the Lord will provide for all your needs. <coughs> Verse 27. Then Yahweh said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So uh, there, so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat bread or drink water. He wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. So this is all the stuff that he, uh, he wrote down. He's a renewal of the Ten Commandments. Then he, he gets down the mountain. 
Verse 29, it came down when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai. The two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he, of his speaking with him. Now, this is a very unique situation. Moses did not go up to the mountain to get some sort of tan. You know, it wasn't like a huge tanning booth. No, it's, it's shown. The language is that it was, he was radiating. Uh, Moses, for some reason, did not realize that when he's looking around that, <clears throat> that he's illuminating. Um, but that was terrifying to them, as it says in verse 30. So when, Moses, so when Aaron, all the sons of Israel, saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, they were afraid to come near him. They didn't understand what was happening. And if it was a tan, uh, they would have been used to it. Like, oh yeah, why are you so dark? But that's not the case. He was shining and they didn't know what, how to react to it, but to stay away. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned, and, and Moses spoke to them. Uh, this is basically him preaching, to, or verse 32. Afterward, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that Yahweh had spoken to them on Mount Sinai. So he's essentially preaching to them the things that he learned. <clears throat> verse 30, when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Now this isn't because, you know, the, the radiate. The, the light that's coming out of him somehow causing any pain to other people. It's just that he didn't want to make people afraid being with him, you know. Uh, so he covered himself so that he can, um, he covered himself so that uh, people will be terrified of him. And this is, again, this reference is actually made by Paul. This is kind of like a side note, but Second Corinthians chapter 7, Paul makes this reference about the veil um, See, 2 Corinthians, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse, um, but, uh, verse 15, but to say, but to this day, whenever Moses is, uh, is read, a veil lies over the heart, but whoever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and there, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as a mirror in the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now Paul here is making a reference to this particular passage because uh, you know they're afraid of God because you know, Moses interacted with the Lord and he's there's like whatever glimmers of God's who the essence I guess I don't know maybe that's the right word is is on Moses and people are terrified from it and. Paul uses the same imagery this is from this event, saying that when we are more like Christ, when we understand who God is in his word, we are being transformed from one glory to the next. We're coming from our, our redeemed self, though imperfect, we're being transformed into the image of our Savior. So this is, again, uh, it's very fascinating that Moses here, he's, he's essentially reflecting God. Right? He's reflecting who God is. He's with God. He communes with God. And when he's walking around, he's reflecting this glory, and people are horrified by it. And this is something that we as Christians need to understand in our life, that every time we encounter God's word, every time we read and study and commune with God in prayer, we should be a light to the world, that we should shine brightly to those around us. This is what Matthew chapter 5 tells us, to let our light shine before men so that we, when we do, and, and to do, do good works. Uh, we know God's word, we've communed with God, and we're supposed to go and, and, and be a light to the world. So then the question is, how bright is your light? You know, sometimes the reason why you're not an influence to the world is because you aren't communing with the Lord. You're not drawn close to Him. You have no desire for prayer. You have no interest in Bible reading or things of the Lord. So therefore, you're not reflecting God. 
But the more you are, the, the closer you are, the holier you are, the more you fight sin, the more distinct you are, that's what will make you shine the way that the Lord wants us to shine. Verse 34, But whenever Moses went to, before, to speak to the Lord, he would take off the veil until he came out, and whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel, he had been commanded. Uh, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses. The skin of Moses' face shone, so Moses would place the veil over his face until he went in to speak with Moses. And that was very interesting, or went to speak with him, the word. Now what is interesting here is that, um, you know, it's not like this event only happened when, God, when Moses went up the mountain to be with the Lord. The implication is that whenever God saw the Lord in the tabernacle, the tent that they were building, his face will continue to shine. Every time he went back and forth between God and the, and the people of God, his face will shine before them. And this, again, it's supposed to be this renewal of this covenant that God is with them, that he is close to them now. He's no longer separated like from the camp that was in the last chapter, but now there's this renewal, uh, this renewal there. And that renewal comes when there's a repentance. You know, this is what I've been saying the last few episodes about how the more you are close to the Lord in your walk with Him in terms of fighting sin, knowing God through the scriptures, the more you're going to be close to Him. You, you cling to the Lord. You draw close to the Lord, and the Lord will draw close to you. And you do that through the meditation and study of His Word. And it's only through that that everything that you have, <coughs> that you have spiritual life. Because the Word of God is considered like food to us. Right, prayer is like breathing. That's how uh, one theologian described it. And you, and you need all of that. That's just part of your spiritual diet. That you consume and you meditate. You drink up the Word of God and you breathe. Um, and you breathe regularly by, by praying without ceasing. That's how you draw close to the Lord. And there's no other way. If you want to have a renewed and right relationship with the Lord, you need to repent of, of laziness, of apathy, of just spiritual deadness. Just like the, how the Israelites were. They had these little idols, and until they were confronted with the holiness of God, they did not repent. But once they repented, just like how Moses was pleading, interceding, once they understood that, that's when they, God was close to them again. And I hope that in your life, as you think about your own walk, that you strive to live a holy life, that in that faithfulness, you renew your relationship with the Lord through your repentance, and by doing so, you shine forth in a lost, dark, and dying world. That's it for this week. Um, I intend to finish the book of Exodus before the end of the month. So please pray for me for that. Uh, we're reaching the end. And then by God's timing, it should be that right when I'm done with this, PH probably will get into the book of Numbers and not too long after. So this is in a lot of ways a, a good lead into that. Thanks for listening. Take care and have a great day. Mm -hmm.